Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we're in a study of the Book of Romans. We started this a number of weeks ago. Uh, if you're tuning into us for the first time, you can go to our website, deepinscripture.com, and you can listen to all the archived programs. In fact, they go back a number of years, but this particular series that Ken and I have been doing, we've started a couple weeks ago, and today we're going to look at chapter 2 of Romans, verses 6 through 24, a fairly large section. Uh, Ken, uh, I don't know if you want to give a little background as a summary leading us what we've done so far up to this point. Well, it's uh, Marcus, this uh, text is a wonderful uh, lead-in to Paul's main point in Romans, and that is he's answering the question of what is the gospel, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is that uh, faith in him and then followed by commitment to him and living a Christian life, uh, a life that is both individual and in the corporate life of the church. He's going to talk about this, but in chapters 1, you remember, or in chapter 1, uh, Peter, uh, Paul was um, talking about the the incredible um, immorality that was in the um, in the Gentile world that he had had observed. In chapter two, we, we recall that he was turning more to his fellow Jews who had accepted, like him, had accepted Jesus as Lord and as Messiah, had entered into the church and were living there in Rome. And we do know from other historical evidence that there was a large Jewish community in Rome uh, prior to the coming of the gospel there. So he turns to them in chapter two. And the natural question that the Jew is going to ask is, well, then it's obvious that we're not immoral like these Greeks and these barbarians and these Romans and so forth. And Paul is going to deliver a very difficult message to his fellow Jews, and that is, no, we're all under sin. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, um, as he's going to say in chapter 3, verse 23. But in chapter 2, he's trying to deal with this question of what what is it to be what is it to be a gentile and not have the law what does that mean with regard to sin and then in chapter and then the rest of chapter 2 <clears throat> what is it to be a jew to have the law know what is right and wrong but still committing sin to still be guilty before god you know something we may take for granted and not appreciate when we listen not just to romans but to the other letters of Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, First and Second Corinthians, and if you want to throw Hebrews into that uh, pot, you can, is to realize that what we're experiencing when we listen to these letters is like two rushing rivers coming together into a, a rapids, a very turmoil, tumultuous rapids that is forming one river. And these letters by Paul are, are trying to help this tumultuous combination of the Jewish heritage, Jewish Christians, and then Paul's new Gentile churches, which are now Gentile converts, come together into one church. And the struggle then is what is essential of the gospel? We got the Jews saying this is essential, and the Gentiles saying something else is, or that some things aren't essential. And part of that battle is going to be, well, is circumcision essential or not 
to the gospel, and we'll deal with yeah. that next time. But we're leading into the battle between these two groups, right, coming together into one yes. church. And the battle yeah, of what absolutely. that brings in morality and theology and doctrine and ecclesiology and all of that stuff, because they bring with them their rivers of tradition and assumptions into this battle. So we're going to pick up that in just a moment. But what we'd like to do every weekend, of course, is to pick up an email that we receive from our listeners, and we encourage you. We'd love to hear your emails, your questions, your comments, and uh, in ways in which this program is an encouragement to you or you know, ways you'd like us to uh, improve on the program. Uh, but we did receive an email from Clint, and he writes, Dear Marcus and Dr. Hall, recently our pastor preached on Matthew 14, 13 to 21. And Ken, you know, that was one of the, the readings uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that's, the, um, that's right. He says, it, uh, preached on Matthew 14 about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the point of our pastor's sermon was about our need to share. Now, he didn't exactly say this, but it sounded like he believes that this was not a miracle of multiplication, but a miracle of sharing. What do you think? Sincerely, Clint. Now, what do you think, Ken? I mean, I, to me, this is, uh, in, I don't know this pastor, of course, or what he was saying, but from my experience in seminary and, and reading books of theology and, and biblical commentaries for the last 40 years, yeah, there is this... Um, stream, if you want to call it, of thinking that wants to look for another alternative explanation of any miracle, not only in Scripture, but in life. Well, that, that's certainly true. I, I think that I don't know the actual history of that particular interpretation. That probably would go back all the way to uh, probably to the 18th century, to the Enlightenment, when there was a secularizing tendency in interpreting the Gospels which lives on right up into today. Um, so I would call that a basically a, se a secular reading of the, that tries to put away any miracles. Now, some people go to the other extreme and they, they see a miracle in the Bible under every little rock and cranny, you know. And th that's not necessarily being orthodox to do that. But neither is it taking account of what the text is saying uh, very clearly when... Um, when the text begins, you know, it says there in Matthew 14, uh, verse 17, that Jesus says, well, you give them something to eat. And then they say, well, all we have here are five loaves and two fishes. And then he sets them down and he feeds them. And then at the end of the story, it said that they ate and everybody was filled. Well, they and they took up 12 basketfuls uh, of surplus food. Well, was that well, because Ken, I, I've got to throw, suddenly... I, got, I just got to throw in here, because I do remember reading a commentary years ago. I won't mention the commentary's name, but literally described it as, I mean, all these people would never have thought about going way off into the wilderness without bringing food with them. They just had it in their backpacks, you know, and everything, and they were hungry, and they forgot. <laughs> they forgot that they had prepared. So when that little boy came forward with his fish and the loaves, they all said, oh. We've got some, and then they looked around and they saw people that hadn't brought. So it was the, and when they <laughs> shared, when it was all done, they realized that through the miracle of their change of attitude, yeah. 
and they opened. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> that it was. It was just. It was just so heartwarming that not only had they opened their hands to feeding their neighbor, but they had truckloads left. So if only we would share, the world would be fed. I mean, on the one hand, that is a good call. But is that the reason it that is. every single gospel has this story? You, you know, the point yeah. is that takes away from the meaning of it being there. Well, part of the message of the gospel of Matthew, as well as the other four gospels, is the superabundance of God's grace. Now, God is a spiritual being. He doesn't have a physical body. We are physical creatures, so we need to understand things through physical means. So our, our stomachs get hungry, we need to be fed. So he's, it, what this is, is it's both true on a literal level, that is on a physical level, there was this multiplication of loaves, but at the same time, spiritually, it's saying that God superabundantly gives his, all of his gifts to his children. It's obvious in the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew has included the story for the same purpose that he included the virgin birth and other stories like that to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the Messiah of Israel. Because text after text in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, uh, in the prophets, it speaks about God coming to feed his people. For example, look at Psalm 78. It's a long psalm, but it says in there that he fed them the bread of angels. In other words, he fed them the bread of heaven. And that becomes a, a, a pointer, a index finger, as it were, pointing forward to what the Messiah does here. There's also another aspect of this, that Jesus multiplied the loaves. Well, the Catholic Church believes that Jesus is still multiplying loaves, except it's now not uh, physical bread, but it's that he's giving his body and blood in multiple places across the face of the earth. Now, this was a theological problem uh, in the Middle Ages, and so the theologians debated about how could it be that Jesus Christ's body and blood was uh, here and in Manila and the Philippines and, you know, in Tokyo and in Germany and France and so forth. And we won't go into that right now because that's a, that's a big topic in and of itself. But the point is this superabundance of grace, and God does want to feed all. I think that's one of the main points of this story. And in order to do that, he pours out his grace to do it. Um, Which explains why. Church Fathers, I, I'm just, hold there for a second. I'm just going to explain that that explains why John 6, which is the penultimate chapter yeah, in exactly. Scripture uh, that defends yeah. and promotes the, the Eucharist as the body and blood of our Lord, that that chapter begins with the miracle yeah. of the multiplication. So the foundation for Christ saying, I am the bread of life, comes from yeah. the, the miracle that he awakened his audience to his power to multiplying the loaves. That opened their hearts and minds to this issue of the loaves. And from that, he points them, as you said, to the multiplication of his body and blood as the authentic union with him. Yeah, and John calls, of course, the miracles a sign, right? A semion in Greek. And the sign in John means a, 
a physical material thing which has a deep spiritual heavenly meaning. But we must remember, John was the last gospel written. He was simply summarizing what the church had believed during all that first century. And so it's clearly there in Matthew as well, that Jesus, the divine Messiah, comes to give him and to feed the people of God and to lead them out, as it were, with a new manna, the new exodus. He leads them into the new promised land. Uh, so it's not at all surprising that Jesus has performed this this miracle. The other factor, too, and, and that is, there's a little, you might say, hermeneutical or interpretive lesson lying in here, and that is, when we look at Scripture and we try to interpret it, do we try to look for the wisdom of the past? As far as I'm aware, no church father ever thought of this prayer, of this story of the multiplication of the loaves as a, as a gift of sharing. They would have said, of course, share your stuff. <laughs> That's the way we do it today because we're not divine and we, we don't have divine powers. But that's not what the original story meant, according to the church fathers. Uh, well, you know, I don't know, Ken. Uh, I mean, there is something in there about sharing. And uh, and to me, here's the point, is that and if you take that story, right, and there's a whole gazillion people sitting around and they're starving because they didn't bring their Doritos with them. And, you know, how are they going to feed each other? Um, but there was one person with them that had some stuff. Right, there was a person that yeah. had that stuff. Now that person could could have looked at the crowd and realized, man, if I share this, I'm not going to have anything left, so I'm keeping it to myself. Yeah, but yeah, by yeah. one person trusting Jesus, he fed five thousand. There is a miracle of sharing, mm-hmm. but it believes in the miracle. Jesus said in John chapter fourteen. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The miracles that need to happen to change the world begin with our generosity. It isn't that we're just talking everybody in the world to share. It's that by our willingness to let go, God then can do a miracle and touch the world. Well, that's a good, the reason the gospel isn't point. spreading, because yeah. we aren't telling. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, I do see your point here, that uh, it's very much the case. And it's interesting that <clears throat> there's the human and the divine side, right? There's the human side that... Five five loaves and two fish are brought forward. That's the gift of this individual. Uh, but then Jesus takes it, and he does what with it? Well, in verse 19, he, he takes the loaves and the fish. He looks up into heaven. He blesses them, and then he has the disciples distribute them. In other words, this is very much like the Eucharist. It's exactly, in fact, the same words that are used. He takes, he looks into heaven, he says the blessing, and then he distributes. So it, it yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. It, there's a, there's the human side. There's the gift that we offer to God, and then the, He blesses that and multiplies it. He blessed it. He broke, gave the loaves to the disciples. And my translation says, and the disciples refused to give it because they would not allow themselves to be servants. You know, I'm not going to serve <laughs> other people. You know, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Uh, you know, debase myself to serve these people? Who do, they th- who do you think I am? 
No, disciples <laughs> yeah. served. You know, that's what deacon means, mm. serve. So the ability to Christ to do his miracles, to change lives, to multiply, needs our generosity and our humility to be channels yeah. of that miracle to those around us. I mean, there's, there's, a, bit, there's a bit of sharing in this gospel. Oh, yeah, I mean, that that's, that's an excellent point. I was just talking yesterday with a priest friend of mine. I haven't talked to him in, oh, probably five or six years. And I was commenting to him, you know, it's just amazing to me the generosity of heart that I see in many of our priests, uh, at least in our diocese, uh, where you know, these men are working 14 hours a day. They're constantly on the go. And then they, when they get a few minutes, they try to take time for the quiet prayer that they should have, you know, hours and hours for, but they don't get that time. And they're constantly giving out to people. And what a wonderful thing. Well, they're imitating our Lord Jesus Christ here and the original apostles in their sense of service. All right, Ken, thank you. Let's look at this passage today. We're going to look at a big section, uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 24. You know, if you got your Bible, open it up, or you can go to the website and look at the, the planning sheet that Ken and I use. And what I've done on the planning sheet is, is I've... Uh, Ken and I have broken up the, the scriptures to show that there's an overall flow and an outline to St. Paul's thinking. And when I think about these two rivers coming together of the Gentiles and the Jews, the Jewish with their great tradition and the law and all that they bring, and let's face it, they assume they're the, they're the true church, they're the true Christians, and then you've got these outsiders, these Gentiles who are even though the prophets from the very beginning were saying that it was to be for all nations, they weren't really buying into that message for a long time. And, and so now we have these Gentile Christians coming in together and we have this mess, you know. Particularly in Corinth, there was a struggle there as well as other places in, in Galatia. So in Rome, there's the same thing. So Paul wants to move, as you say, Ken, into the main point of his passage where he's dealing with the Jew and the Gentile. But he, he does it very gently. And he begins back in verse 1 by talking about how everybody in the world has, has a basic knowledge of God in their conscience and has no excuse for not responding in holiness. But because of sin and our rejection of God, we move. All the Jews would be wagging their head up and down, and so would the Gentiles over there in, in their separate corners. Paul wants to bring them together. And so he begins in verse 6 in this section with kind of a summary view of the two paths. And I'm going to read these sections, so Ken, I'm going to spend the rest of the whole radio program reading the text. <laughs> but, <laughs> but in case the audience doesn't hear, I want to hear the, uh, the flow. So he begins in verse 6 through 8 with two sides. He's not saying Jew and Gentile. He's saying people in general who hear God and then not respond. He says in verse 6, For he will render, God will render, to every man according to his works. On the one hand, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. On the other hand, verse 8, But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. 
Then in verse 9 and 10, he repeats the same thing, but he introduces very gently the two groups, Jew and Gentile. Verse 9, on the one hand, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then on the other hand, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So St. Paul is introduced into the discussion, the Jew and the Greek. Then verse 11 and 13, he addresses it directly. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. And then he explains on that, verse 12 and 13. On the one hand, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. On the other hand, second part of verse 12, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And Ken, we'll get to that in a little bit because the significance of hearers and doers. But then in verse 14 and 16, he even goes farther. And 14 and 16, he addresses the one river of the Gentile Christians. And then 17 through 24, he deals with the Jewish. In 14 through 16, when Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And then verse 17, he deals with the Jews. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, will you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, Ken, there's an overview of this flow of Paul's thinking. Yeah, what he does here is he balances two things that are always have to be kept in perspective. On the one hand, <clears throat> he's clearly making the point, again, that all are sinners, but they sinned with respect to different levels of knowledge. So the Gentiles, it said, they, they sinned without the law, and they will perish without the law. And then the Jews, on the other hand, they sinned with the law, and they will be judged by the law because they had a superior knowledge of what it was to be right or wrong. In the case of the Gentiles, this, uh, in a sense, answers a question that you have a lot of people asking today. Well, you know, how can God judge people in, in Africa or in the jungles of South America or in Asia who've never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can he do it? And, and he says in verse 16 that he's going to judge the secrets of men's hearts according to my gospel. 
He doesn't actually say he's going to judge them according to whether they've heard the gospel, but the secrets that are in their heart against the standard of the gospel. And in that respect, it doesn't matter whether you live in the Amazon and never heard the name of Jesus Christ or you live in Rome and hear it every day, you're still going to be judged with regard to that gospel. But also, you're going to be judged differently because you had different levels of knowledge and understanding. What it tells us in verse 15, Marcus, is that the by our actions, by or at least by our conscience, we know that um, that the uh, the work of the law is written on the hearts of people. If I might just illustrate that for just very briefly, I listened to a recent um, debate between an atheist and a Protestant a philosopher. And in listening to this debate, I was very pleased listening to the atheist. By the way, his name is is Sam Harris. And of all the atheists, now that I've read a number of them, I kind of like Sam Harris the best because he seems to me to be the most honest of all the atheists. And he was telling the story that he went to this academic academic, uh, meeting and it was about the question of morality. And he was saying that it's not right for people to do thus and so and so forth. So, and these, uh, you know, brilliant academic, quote unquote, brilliant academics were coming up to him and saying, well, how can you say that that was not right or that right? I mean, it's all relative to culture, right? So it's a cultural relativism in terms of moral beliefs. And Sam uses this illustration. He said, so he asked this woman who was challenging him. He said, now suppose there was a culture out there in which every third child's eyes needed to be taken out. Every third child is born, they cut out the eyes of the child. Would you say that that's wrong for them to do that? And she said, well, it depends on what reason. <laughs> I said, well, suppose they have a, suppose they have a book, you know, a, a holy book that says, you know, every third child shall walk in darkness, you know, and you cut out the eyes of the child. Could you say that that is an immoral action? And you know what she said? I don't know. And he hung his head yeah. and he said, I'm sympathetic to Christians who think if you get rid of God, you, you know, you don't have any basis for morality. But you see what I'm the point I want to make is that if you think about what Sam is saying here, he shows that it's written in his heart. Even though he denies God, it shows he's written in his heart. And really, that is such an important part of this whole section is uh, it calls us to charity to those that are outside and our need to tell them the truth because they're responsible for how they act on their conscience. We'll come back to that in a moment after the break. See you in a minute. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1111. 
1-800-227-1175. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home, Marcus welcomes revert to Catholicism Sean Chapman to the show. See how his studies led him home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Howell, and we're looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 24. And I, I spent some time, read through the whole section. I hope you have your scriptures in front of you or the, the, the printout that's on our website just to follow it through to see the flow of, of uh, St. Paul's thinking. Uh, and I do believe that part of his pastoral goal, essentially as a bishop, uh, you know, writing to these Christians in Rome that he's never been to, but he's recognizing the authority of of the even though individual churches yet there is still one church that flows from Christ through his apostles and he recognizes his responsibility as an apostle to the gentiles as he was affirmed this responsibility by uh, James Peter and, and John uh, back in Jerusalem he he wants to bring unity to this church and so he very gently addresses the issue, first pointing out the common guilt of humanity in general, but slowly bringing it into the topic at hand, which is the battle between the Jews and the Gentile Christians. And he's showing them that, uh, you know, in verse 6 through 8, you know, we're all guilty uh, if we have chosen apart from our conscience. In verse 9 and 10, he addresses this and he introduces Jew and Greek. In verse 11 through 13, he shows that really God has no partiality between Jew or Greek. All of us are have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, um, which is a, a quote from later in Romans. Uh, and then verse 14 through 24, he addresses both groups head on. First the Jews, excuse me, first the Gentiles, and then from verse 17 through 24, the Jews. Can a couple things that, that jumped out at me as I looked at this that I'd like to pose to you because, uh, you know, you're, you're the Greek scholar. In nine verses 9 and 10, when he's introducing the subject of the Jew and the Greek, he's saying there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. So he emphasizes the doing of good or the doing of evil as the criteria. And I think that in itself, I mean, let's, let's look at that first. That this, it's the doing of good and evil that he emphasizes over and over in this second chapter that is the key to being in union and, and salvation to God. 
And and this goes back to his statement in verse 6, where he says that God will render or will give a judgment to each according to his works. It's taught erga too in Greek. In other words, it's not enough just to know. It's not enough just to hear. Uh, I'm reminded of the the Lord's words in uh, Math, uh, Luke. No, no, excuse me. In uh, John chapter 15, where he's telling the story about the parable. Remember of the uh, I am the vine, and you are oh, yeah. my father is the the vine dresser. And he says uh, in chapter 15, I think it's in verse 10, he says that <clears throat> you're going to be blessed if you do these things. He says not not that you just know them but that you do them. You obey my commandments. That's what will bring you blessing. And he says, you will remain in my love if you do these things. You know, Marcus, this uh, theme about doing the will of God is so prevalent in the New Testament. We remember our Lord's words in, I think it's Matthew chapter 7, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, where where Jesus says that uh, the man who hears the word but doesn't act upon it is like the man who built sand. On the other hand, the man who hears and acts upon it is like a man who's building his house on a rock, right? So Jesus is clearly contrasting hearing, understanding with the mind, but then doing. And probably one of the clearest passages in the entire New Testament is found in in James chapter 1, let me read that briefly. James chapter 1, verse 22 and following. He says, Become doers of the word and not hearers only, as if to deceive yourself. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks into a mirror at his face, his native face, he looks into a mirror, he contemplates himself, but when he goes away, he forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into, who peers into the perfect law of liberty and abides in it and is not just a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, he will be blessed in his doing, it says. You know, it's amazing to me that Christians could have ever thought with these kinds of texts that it was ever sufficient enough just to sort of believe intellectually in Jesus. Now, the Bible says, of course, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. But then we have to ask the question, what does it mean believe? Well, believing in the Bible without going into great detail is a matter of commitment, and that means doing. Following right up on that, Ken, if we look in John chapter 6, and, and beginning with verse 27... What's significant about this following section, Ken, is it follows right after the multiplication of the loaves, right? And the people wanted to make him king. So what's the significance of that? Well, you know, they all opened their pockets and they shared with one another and they had all this left over and they were happy (laughs) and they went home full. Um, uh, No, that's not what happened, is that there was a miracle that Christ multiplied and that, that leads for the foundation of what will come later. But right after that, that sign... Jesus says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you for on him, as God the Father sent his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Again, it's this issue of doing, right? Doing. What must we do? And Jesus answered, well, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. You know, Ken, this is where 
the foundation where, you know, what do we do? It's believing in Jesus. It's faith in him alone. That's all that it's about. But again, Mm -hmm. when taken out of the context of the chapter, later he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. You know, the context of believing is not merely accepting the reality that Jesus existed or that he's the Son of God or that he's the incarnate uh, you know, deity in human flesh. That's the beginning. It's what significance does this therefore mean? And it should drive us to our knees to become living sacrifices, as Paul will say later in Romans chapter 12. Our life, believing in Jesus is means that our life is to be a living sacrifice. Everything exactly. is to be different. Mm-hmm. And how we live is to make all the difference in the world. And to me, that's the point here that Paul's getting at in this section. You either do good or not means, do you believe in me? Has it made a difference well, in your life? Exactly. The biblical concept of faith, and you read that text in John 6, which is when he asked, well, what should we do? And he says that you believe, right? Well, what does it mean to believe? Well, let me just read one verse. I don't want to translate a little differently than you might find in your Bibles. Uh, this is in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. When he was in Jerusalem in the feast of the Passover, listen, many believed on his name when they saw the signs that he did. But Jesus did not believe in them. Imagine that. Now, I'm translating a little differently, but here's what it means. The Greek, the same Greek word is used. That's why I used the word oh, pistuo, yeah. to believe. And what it means yeah, my is translation he is he did not trust in himself in them. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. It's the same thing. It shows that the word pistuo doesn't mean just intellectually believe. It means to entrust oneself. So when he says that you may believe on the Son of Man, that you may believe on the one the Father sent, it means that you entrust your life to him. And, and it's exactly what you're saying, quoting Paul in Romans 12, about living a sacrificial life. It's kind of like we mentioned last week, that believing in Jesus Christ is not merely trusting that he is the one bridge over this chasm that separates us from God. A one-time acceptance of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we then enter over the bridge, we've entered over the chasm, we've arrived. In reality, we see Scripture and the, and the church fathers and, and the spiritual writers for the last 2,000 years emphasizing that it's like we're going through this long cavern uh, of cave that has challenges and suffering and joys, and, and we entrust our lives to Jesus, that he's going to guide us through this long journey. And these Jews and Gentiles are coming together in this horrendous um, the two rivers coming together. How are we going to come together into one church? And he's saying, trust Jesus. He will bring mm-hmm. unity and love and humility out of this mess so that we can stand together united in Christ. Well, if you think, of, to use your cavern example, which I think is a beautiful metaphor, uh, the uh, think about it for a moment. What Paul is saying here when he says the Jew first and then the Greek, he's saying the Jews went into the cavern first. They went into that life journey with God. God was gracious enough to give them the law, the covenants, as he's going to say in chapter 9. He gave them all of these gifts, the sonship, the adoption, as he calls it. Um, So in that sense, the Jews were privileged. 
Uh, and we should still believe that today as Christians, that the Jews were our older brothers and sisters in faith. But that wasn't the there wasn't a period there. There was a comma in God's plan. And he's saying to the Gentiles, I want you to come into this as well. I want you to walk this journey with my fellow Jewish people. I'm going to have you expand a little bit more because in verse 9 and 10, you know, he could have just said there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. But instead of simply saying that, he inserted twice, and I'm pretty sure the exact Greek words, he emphasizes the Jew first and also the Greek. Yes, he does. The Jew first and also the Greek. The fact that he emphasizes it means that this is a very significant point in Paul's theology. I mean, is he essentially saying that though we each stand before God culpable for how we've lived by our conscience— but because of the privilege of the of the Jews, they have more culpability. Yes, that that is that is correct. I think, and remember that this is not the first time he's used the phrase. Back in chapter one, verse sixteen, he used it again when he gives this great declaration: "I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, and then to the Greek." The gospel, the Messiah, the promise of eternal life and the kingdom all came to the Jew first. It also came, as you rightly pointed out, in the prophets. It was going to be for the whole world. It was going to be for the Gentile, for the Greek as well. But it came through the Jew. Now, there's there's several things that, that are worth pointing out here. One is that we're going to study in chapter 9 that I think it's essential for Christians to realize the great debt that we owe the Jewish people. Not not because they created it, but because they received the gift and they um, they protected and held that gift for us who are Gentiles. But the second point is that there's an analogy here between ancient Israel and the Gentiles and between Catholics and people outside the church. We have been privileged beyond measure with the gift of the church, the gift of the Eucharist, the gift of the Pope, the gift of Mary, all of these wonderful treasures that we have. And we, like the Jews, will be held to a greater standard than others. That's why we have to be more zealous. Now, the beautiful thing about it is, is that the more and more that I get to know, you know, really solid Catholics, people that are really seeking holiness, it's amazing what these people, how these people live, how holy they live. And it's a beautiful thing to watch there their lives as being transformed in the image of Christ. Ken, this section reminds me of back when I was in seminary that there was a battle amongst evangelicals between two ways of understanding and interpreting not just scripture but all of church history. And you and I come from back similar seminary backgrounds which we would uh, on the one hand we would say covenantal that we would have looked at salvation history beginning with Adam all the way through as a series of covenants as God um, was wedded to his people. And these it's a, it was a continuity that existed all the way through Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and Solomon, and this long line of how God had continually dealt with his people through the prophets, and then our Lord Jesus as a fulfillment of this, 
and we see the transition from the Old Testament covenantal people of God to the church, this continuity. Now, that was my Presbyterian Calvinist covenantal background, but there was another whole uh, interpretive grid out there that was represented by, I don't know if I should point fingers to certain groups, but it was dispensationalism. that had a completely different interpretation. And Ken, there's a certain extent that the problem with this dispensationist idea, which so influences so many of our separated brethren, is it really makes it difficult how to interpret the very verses that we're looking at in Romans. Hmm. How do you you mean that? What what do you say? Well, I mean, this continuity of the Jews and the Greeks, and, you know, the, the continuity of receiving a law and passing it onward, as opposed to there was the Jewish dispensation, and that's ended. And then there's oh, a yeah, new dispensation. Yeah. And that because the Jews didn't respond, then we have a whole new dispensation that God hadn't really planned. And that was the time of the church. And that, yeah, yeah. you know, so they, they break yeah. it up into these dispensations and therefore yeah. don't recognize the beauty and the importance of the continuity. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I think it's very clear that there is um, there's both continuity and discontinuity and depending on what you emphasize more. Right. And dispensationalists tended to emphasize the discontinuity, especially classic. You might call them classic dispensationalists like J.N. Darby, who started dispensationalism back in the 19th century. One of the biggest names was C.I. Schofield, right, in the, the famous Schofield Bible. And he would he had that vision, like you talked about, where you had these different dispensations to the point where there were different means of salvation in these different dispensational periods. I think, I've, I haven't talked to dispensationalists in a long, long time, but I think they've kind of modified that yeah. because they've seen a little bit more of the continuity that's there. And if you look in the church fathers, you'll see both again. You'll see they're emphasizing the continuity, but also the discontinuity. But here's what the church fathers tend to emphasize. And this is why sometimes they sound kind of anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic. I don't think they really are, but this is what you hear them say. They'll say things like, well, now, now the, the truth of the Jewish faith or the Jewish people uh, it, that was predicted in the Old Testament, now it's fulfilled in Christ. Now it's fulfilled in the church. And so the Jews continuing to stay outside the church, you know, they're culpable. And it's hard to avoid that conclusion, I think. But at the same time, Paul is going to tell us in chapters 9 through 11 that God is not done with the Jews that are still outside the church. What we can rejoice in is people like our very dear friend that we both know and love, uh, Rosalind Moss, right? Yeah. And her brother David. And her brother David, right? And and uh, these there's, there's in fact there people like Larry Feingold is a great uh, Catholic theologian. His wife, um, they uh, they also are they're people of Jewish heritage. They're the original children of Abraham, and yet they've embraced the the fullness of the faith in Jesus Christ. And I I just personally rejoice tremendously when I see Jewish people people that are ethnically Jewish, embracing the true Messiah, Jesus. Well, to me, these phrases that you've emphasized, actually, he quotes three times, the Jew first and then the Gentile, and also to the Gentile, also to the Greek, excuse me, uh, emphasizes what I see expressed in the Catholic Catechism, and that is that for us to truly understand our Christianity, we need to understand our underlying Judaism, our Jewish past. 
to understand the necessity of the church, we need to understand that our whole Christian faith was built on the idea that God always offered salvation through his people. That is exactly right. Absolutely. Well, and you, just to pick up on that, Marcus, I mean, one of the things that brought me into the Catholic Church in the early 1990s when I was struggling with this question, I was teaching classes on the Old Testament prophets, and I could see very clearly in the prophets this promise of a time when God's new covenant people would be characterized by at least four things. They would be one, they would be holy, they would be Catholic, and they would be apostolic. They'd be missionary people, as Pope uh, Benedict and uh, and uh, John Paul emphasized so rightly. In other words, there it is, right there in the Old Testament. You're putting your finger on it. This is why I think Scott's, uh, Scott Hans, our colleague's uh, books have been very helpful to people, because what Scott has done is been able to show people this background. Well, we saw that background yep. in our Calvinist heritage, because we went through the Old Testament in what some people would think is great detail, Right. And we saw this beautiful. In other words, you couldn't be a Jew and consciously reject being a Jew. You couldn't be a Jew and consciously reject. I don't want to have anything to do with Israel. That's not my people. No, no. You had to be a part of the people of God. That's all we're saying as Catholic Christians. We want you to be a part of the people of God as that's institutionally expressed in the Catholic Church. Yeah. And forgive me for a moment to sound a bit self-promoting, but... Uh, I might recommend my little book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? Yes, you're um, right. That's which, a great book. Which, well, it's it, really what it tries to do, and I don't know if it accomplishes it, but what it tries to do is to take all that theology you just talked about, all that Scott has said and, and greater theologians, far sharper knives in the drawer than I'll ever be, and I've tried to condense it and simplify it into a small little booklet to demonstrate this continuity, that Jesus, it's not about just me and Jesus. We're, we're saved by being faithful individuals as a part of the family. That's what it's always been from the beginning. And well, it's not, I'm sorry. No, I just because it's not just because we're friends, but having read that, that book that you did on that, uh, What Must I Do to Be Saved, many people may, in a sense, be misled by the title uh, because they may be thinking it's individual. But what you're saying in that book is so important, Marcus, and that is that being a faithful Christian means being a part of the church that Christ founded. Now, people may struggle with identifying what that church is, and that's why we exist, just to share with them, to walk along, not right. to push them, pressure them, not to, you know, preach at them, but just to help them to understand. But this is one of the things that my, my pastor, my priest uh, often says is that the problem in today's society is that people don't understand the necessity of the church. The church is what Christ gave us to help us live the Christian life. You know, this last section in this part we're going to look at for the last couple of minutes, Ken, is, uh, where he's in verse 17 on where he's dealing with the Jews who are, you know, Jew first. They've, they've received the law. They should know better. Um, the Gentiles have their conscience, but the Jews not only have their conscience, but they have the law, just like we Catholics have the church. And that section 17 through 24, Ken, is very mea copa, mea copa, mea maxima copa, because he's basically <laughs> saying, you've got the laws, okay, you say you know God's will, you boast of your relationship with God, you don't, excuse me, but why are you failing? Why are yeah, you exactly. sinning? 
What's yeah, the problem yeah. here? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really true, and and it's and literarily, I mean, the way that you kind of began to outline it there, and the way you did outline it on the uh, on the planning sheet, he just takes these things. So you consider yourself a blind, a guide of the blind. All right, you consider yourself a light to those in darkness, a teacher of the ignorant and of you know and of the young, of of babes basically. That you have this form of knowledge of the truth. In the law, well, then, yeah, why why aren't you living consistent? That you're right. That is an absolute. It's an indictment against us as Catholics uh, that we uh, we don't live up to this in every way. Now, there's another thing too, and, and that is to keep this balance. Um, it's this raises the question of what is hypocrisy, and this is a very important thing to clarify. Hypocrisy is not the same as sin. Sin is not living up to the standard. Hypocrisy is not living up to the standard and pretending that you are. Yeah. Do you see the difference? Because if you're not living up to the standard, what's the right exp- what's the right um, posture? It's the posture of repentance. It's the posture of confession. And that's why Catholics need to go to confession, both sacramentally and individually every day. But then... To go beyond that and to pretend that one is not doing, that's what's really heinous. Yeah, you do a lot of work with atheist cans, and I imagine there are atheists that look at sinful Catholics and say, you bunch of hypocrites, but it's partially because they really don't know the Catholic faith. They don't realize that we Catholics recognize we're sinners. We're yeah, called to be holy, and we know, but the fact that we aren't sinners doesn't mean that we're hypocrites. It means that we're sinners trying. Now, if I claim I'm the best father on the planet, and my sons hold their hand up and say, wait, I've, I've got some uh, comments to that, then I'm a hypocrite. But I'm not claiming to be the best father, but I know I'm called yeah. to be. Exactly. That's the difference. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's exactly right. And I think, as you pointed out earlier, that... Uh, it is that humility which we say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not what I ought to be, and and I'm, I'm striving to be that. And then, this is a call to reform not only our lives but even the church, because the church structurally can fall into hypocrisy as well. That's what also needs to be reformed. And we need to pray that by grace we don't have that statement at the end that says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Yeah. Yeah, you know, exactly. we pray that uh, we, our lives are not a scandal. We, we want to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ and his church. Well, Ken, thank you for joining us again on this time. Always appreciate it, my friend. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. I hope it's been encouragement to you. Please let us know. Send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. And join us again next week. We'll continue with our study of the Book of Romans. And we hope that this will draw us closer to Christ and his church. God bless you.